Welcome to Many Happy Miles, a podcast that celebrates all types of forward movement. Whether it's a week of workouts in a hotel gym, like I'm headed to, or 11 strong miles, as Sarah Wassner Flynn just ran this weekend, we're here to say yay to it all. I'm Dimity McDowell, co founder of Another Mother Runner. And I'm Sarah Wester Flynn, and I am saying yeah, yeah to those 11 miles because to be honest, I was not feeling them and I was woke up pretty stuffy. I have a cold and I was going to bail. And then I kept thinking all my mantras and all my like, okay, you just get up in one foot in front of the other and I got it done and I still feel not so great, but you know, I got 11 miles in that Boston bank. So yay to that. 11 miles in the Boston Bank. We just mm-hmm. need a couple more to go, a couple more months of miles. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So awesome. Awesome. Well, so Sarah, you you are not just a podcast co-host and a track coach and a mom of four. You also are a writer um, as well on the side, um, one of your many hats you wear. And mm-hmm. uh, you recently wrote an article for Triathlete Magazine. So you want to tell us about it? Sure. Yeah. Well, this was a really um, interesting article for me. I interviewed a uh, professor from Central Connecticut College named Diana Tracy Cohen. Um, actually, my editor, Susan Lack at Triathlete, forwarded me the story or the abstract of Diana's latest study, and it's all about Iron Moms. And I am a somewhat triathlete. I can call myself a triathlete, even though I haven't raced one in a, a couple of years, yeah. and a mom. So, of course, this resonated with me. And as we will discuss, Diana kind of tapped into the brain and the motivation of women who do Ironman triathlon and looked at it from a social science perspective. And so that article published um, a little more than a week ago, and it really hit a note with many readers. And a lot of times, you know, these stories are like, you know, come and go. But this one, you know, people are still commenting. And and I think there's a lot of women out there who want to be seen, who want to say like, yeah, I'm doing this really hard thing. I'm a mom. I'm a caregiver. I have all these balls in the air. And thank you for noticing. You know, we can't, we can do it all. We can't do it all, whether we can or can't, you know, we're at least we're trying. And so that was kind of the gist of my story. And we'll get into it a little bit more with Diana and talk to her more about her study and her work. I love it. I love it. So here to continue that conversation is Diana Tracy Cohen, who is an assistant professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. Diana, herself an Ironman triathlon finisher, first authored a study focusing on Iron Dads, which she turned into the book Iron Dads, Managing Family, Work, and Endurance Sport Identities, which focused on the pressures and preparation for an endeavor like an Ironman can place on families, exploring the ways in which men with full-time jobs, kids, and other responsibilities fit this level of training into their lives. So most recently, Diana turned her focus onto Iron Moms, looking into similar complexities as well as those unique to women. It's all fascinating stuff and really resonates with anyone who's trying to balance a big athletic goal with career and family and everything else life throws our way. So yeah, let's get into it and welcome Diana. Thank you very much for having me. We are excited to talk to you. So let's let's start by having you tell us a little bit about your own athletic background. Were you always active as a kid or did the endurance bug bite you in adulthood? Ah, uh, great question. I have always been active, but it took me a while to actually get to an endurance sport passion. So I started off in martial arts, actually, uh, Tong Sudo. I was inspired by the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> and so I, uh, I asked my parents if I could join a, a Tong Sudo after school program. 
And I, I loved it. Uh, and I actually still train in uh, martial arts today. I'm a fourth degree black belt, but that was kind of the bedrock of my athletic experiences for a while. And in high school, I played field hockey, lacrosse, ice hockey. I played ice hockey in college, and it wasn't actually until I was pursuing graduate studies when I found endurance sport. So growing up in the Northeast, I, I played hockey, and then I went to grad school in the South uh, in Gainesville, Florida, and there aren't any hockey rinks down there. So one of my uh, roommates who was in my um, graduate cohort, she invited me to go out for a run with her. She was training for a half marathon in Orlando, and I was never really into running, but I'm like, well, why not? You know, it's beautiful out, great sense of camaraderie. And I took to it right away. So I started my tri career as a runner, then evolving to a, a cyclist, and then eventually swimming, where I actually didn't know how to swim and I was afraid of the water when I first started training for, for Ironman. Oh, I love wow. those stories. And, and you <laughs> eventually did an Ironman and remind us how long the swim is in an Ironman. It's 2.4 miles. Yeah. And yeah, I was uh, I was petrified. I, I grew up kind of afraid of the water. My parents forced me into swim lessons and I hated it. I would always fear the day when the lessons would come. But I was really passionate about swimming and biking. And I said, if I could just figure out this swim component, it would open up this whole new landscape of competition for me. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to face this fear. I'm going to just learn and, and figure it out. Nice. Yeah. I had to ask you, did you do the half Ironman or not the half Ironman, the half marathon in Orlando with your classmate? I did. Yes. Yeah. So I trained for four weeks um, <laughs> and and I finished, uh, I think it was around two hours and 10 minutes, which I was thrilled and I was hooked. So right, I signed up for the next run right away and, um, you know, then got into the marathon distance. But yeah, I, uh, I really have to thank my classmate there for getting me into it. You're natural, it sounds like. So, yeah. so what prompted you to blend your interest and your experience in endurance sports with your work as a social scientist? Mm. Well, you know, as an academic, I feel like one of the great things that I can do in my career is to blend my passions with my my academic scholarship. So um, that's really at the heart of what we do is we want to pursue scholarly research that really speaks to us, in part because as social scientists, we often spend years working on a project, particularly if it's a, a book length project. So as I was training for Ironman, uh, and competing, I just had so many questions about how do other people do this? Um, you know, I had my own experiences, but looking around, I saw such a diversity of people that were in the sport. And I, I just wanted to literally hear what they had to say in terms of how they got to that starting line, how they got to that finish line. So just the you know, my my work wanting to hear about people's lived experiences and myself going through the training and knowing how difficult it is. It just uh, it felt like it was a calling to me to understand how other people pursued this endeavor. Love it. Love it. So we mentioned your first study in this realm was on dads. So why did you choose to start with men? Mm. So uh, a couple reasons. Um, number one is at the time when I was uh, pursuing my graduate coursework in sociology, I was working with one of the world's leading scholars on masculinities. And I had taken a class on men and masculinities. And I absolutely loved the class. I loved the material. And I noticed that there really was not a lot of work in general in the area of men and masculinity, but particularly on fathers who participate in endurance sport. Um, but secondarily, I was also a little bit afraid about my own reflexive processes. So as a woman 
I was fearful, you know, would I be able to really objectively see other women's experiences or would my, you know, my own experience as a woman kind of cloud my ability to hear what other people are telling me? So as kind of a young scholar, I felt like I wanted to to study something that was like me, but not exactly me. So I wanted to create a little bit of distance. So it was kind of a two reasons there as to why I studied Iron Dads first. Yeah, that's oh, that's interesting. really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So now that you've studied both men and women, what are the biggest differences between the genders? So I would say in general, most of the women that I spoke to for my Iron Mom study uh, have a very healthy and open dialogue with their spouses about uh, their iron distance training and often set up schedules with their spouses. So it's a lot of of scheduling, a lot of conversation. So something that I heard quite often was like weekly family meetings where the couple would kind of lay out, okay, what are the things we have to do with our kids and, and when is the training going to take place? So very methodical but open conversation for Iron Dads. Many of them had conversations, but not as much. Uh, they, they basically kind of leaned on their partner and at times perhaps even you might say take them for granted that the women would take care of the children and not necessarily plan things in advance. So uh, the, I felt that uh, at times perhaps women who were supporting their iron spouses were, were really sacrificing and just expected to sacrifice, whereas women... They really wanted to have that conversation. They felt like in order for this to work, I have to be open and transparent and I have to have someone who's on board with this for this to work. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because it really is. I mean, we're talking about Ironman or Iron, yeah, Ironman distances. But like Sarah, you said in the intro, it's really any big goal. I mean, it could be a marathon. It could even be a half marathon if you're coming from somebody who is not, you know, have have a running background in this whole idea of going out and training for a couple hours is new to to your environment. Is that mm-hmm. correct, Diana? Am I putting words in your mouth? No, that's that's correct, yes. Okay, cool. What were the takeaways of each study similar? Or did you find some similarities between men and women? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, there are similarities and, and there are differences. So, I mean, the biggest similarity, of course, is that both men and women are wrestling with this same notion of identity and, you know, having multiple roles in their life, multiple uh, hats that they wear, if you will, that all uh, lead to a very complex picture. So while not every single mom or dad has, there, there's obviously such a diversity of experiences, but kind of at the heart of the study, many of the men and women were balancing a career with having a spouse, with having children, and in particular, having younger children. So one of the criteria that I had for both studies, I actually tried to keep the criteria the same. Okay. Um, and one of them was uh, children under the age of 12. And the reason I uh, had that criteria was I wanted to have moms and dads that were dealing with children that are a little bit less self-sufficient. You know, once you start to get into your teenage or later teenage years, parents might feel like they can leave their kids at home, or maybe their kids could even drive themselves to their, um, you know, sporting activities or whatever they do. So the commonalities is in the challenge that they share, which is that, you know, you're dealing with all these complex identities that overlap and you're having to deal with, uh, you know, negotiation, negotiation with your employer, your, you know, yourself in terms of your expectations. Um, But it's in how that 
negotiation takes place and some of the nuances of those complexities. So, for example, you know, moms, uh, the societal expectations of moms in the mothering arena is different from the expectations of dads in the fathering arena. So moms, there's a, a lot of unhealthy narratives out there surrounding moms. I, I would say that weigh on moms more than I think dads. Mm-hmm. Um, not And I'm not to say that there aren't unhealthy narratives for dads. There are. But just this idea of this super mom, the, that mom has to do everything and has to be perfect at it. But further, that moms also need to prioritize their kids and at the cost of themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't think that you necessarily see that, that same exact narratives for dads. Um, so like leisure, it's expected that leisure takes a back seat, that self-care for moms take a back seat to their mothering identities, which really adds a, a unique layer of complexity to the iron mom experience. It does. Yeah, it yeah. does. Yes. I think we can both attest to that, Dimity. <laughs> oh, for uh, sure. For sure. Yeah. So, so Diana, you've kind of talked about it, but break down your iron mom study for us just in a nutshell. Like how did you find your subjects and what did you actually study with them? Like what was the objective of the the study? So at the heart of what I was looking to understand was just how moms balance and, and juggle, I should say, their multiple identities. So basically, how do you do it? Uh, and similar, similar to dad's. So, you know, how do you prioritize your schedule on a day-to-day basis? How do you negotiate finances? So a lot of it is like family dynamics and power within the family. Okay. Uh, how, how do you negotiate uh, who's going to do what and when? How do you involve your kids? To what extent do you involve your kids in your training? And how, how do you do that? Uh, how do you negotiate time with your job? Do you try to uh, work out during lunches? And probably the biggest uh, thing in triathlon is the long run and the long ride. You know, when you have to be out for, well, at its peak, maybe a uh, hundred miles, and maybe you're doing a brick workout where you're adding a run on top of that. So how do you negotiate finding that time and uh, how do you carve that out? So I asked those types of questions uh, and more, of course, and to do that, um, I used in-depth interviews. I used a, a semi-structured interview guide, which I had a basis of, of questions to go off of. But if there was something intriguing that I wanted to, to kind of follow up on, I gave myself the latitude to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recruited on um, triathlon uh, blog sites, so uh, Slow Twitch, as well as through triathlon clubs. And the biggest, most helpful thing was actually snowball sampling, otherwise you know, word of mouth, where I asked moms if they knew any other moms and they would give me names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think that you mentioned before that your study's ongoing. So people are still coming, to, reaching out to you, correct? Yes. In fact, I knew when uh, the triathlete uh, article went live because I, I went to teach and my class was an hour and 15 minutes that day. And when I came back, I had over 30 emails in just <laughs> that hour and 15 minutes and they're still coming in. So incredibly touching. Yeah. So, yeah like I said, the people, you know, women want to be seen and heard. And then, you know, it's great that you're putting this platform for that to happen. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit. One thing that you do touch on in your study that, that the women um, that you spoke with mentioned quite often is the mom guilt element. So mm-hmm. it's certainly um, something that is unique to women. No shade to men, of course, but I don't think the anxiety is as pervasive as it is with women. And it resonated with the with the readers of the triathlete piece. I did see that in the comments. So gosh, 
Diana, why do you think we're so darn guilty and how can we work to change that narrative? Well, I think the evolution of what moms are doing has changed, but the expectations have not adjusted accordingly to be more realistic. So, um, you know, moms are now expected to both be the champions in the home while also and caretaking responsibilities while also working full-time jobs, many of them. So whether it's out of necessity for income necessity for the family or just you know the personal desire and passion of the mom, more moms are going out into the working world. Many of them are actually the chief um, income earner for the family now, an increasing percentage are. But yet, yeah, the expectations of the moms have not changed in terms of you know, what do we expect of moms on the on the caretaking end of things? So it it is a, a setup for guilt because these expectations are not realistic and social media amplifies that. So social media amplifies what looks to be like perfection, what looks to be like something that is beautifully and perfectly executed, but nothing ever is. And social media doesn't allow for a more rich understanding of what's actually happening. So if I take a snapshot of my home and everything looks orderly and I say, well, I just went out training and let me show you what my home looks mm-hmm. like and let me show you what the dinner that I that I have on the table looks like. You might think, wow, how does she do it? She trained, she she cleaned the room, she cooked. But, you know, that's not the whole picture. That's not the, that's far from the whole equation. But it's easy to think that it is. And so I think that the social media snapshots that we get, are they're not a holistic view. They uh, perpetuate this unhealthy narrative and it's easy to internalize. Totally. I hear you. There's two things I want to comment on here. The first is, um, Sarah, when we were talking about this, talking to Diana, you mentioned this woman who um, like went to the Miss Universe pageant, I guess, or the Mrs. Universe pageant. She's married two Mm -hmm. weeks after having her baby. Mm -hmm. Um, Ten days. Ten days. Ten days. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's it's in the New York Times today. It's just, oh, there's okay. a story about it. So I have not mm-hmm. read it yet. But like, again, like I, I'm like, when I first heard it, I'm like, oh, that's ridiculous. And now I'm like, wait, it's going to be in the mainstream media about it. And again, maybe mm-hmm. the article, I have not read it. Like maybe it debunks like the fact that most women are not going to be in a pageant two weeks after they have a child. But then the second thing too, when you're talking about just, you know, Diana, I hear you talking about just the pressure of being a mom and being a professional, like let alone being a long distance triathlete. And I don't know if you found this or not, but you know, there's a lot of like iron divorces, right? And ultra divorces, right? Because people get so into their training and it's such a self-fulfilling, self-validating activity that um, it's sometimes hard to step back and say, oh my gosh, I've got to think of my family. And I don't know if that goes for both men and women, or if you even found that anymore, if that's a dated stereotype, or I'm just curious to have you comment on that. Yeah, no, not dated at all. Actually, very contemporary. And one of the biggest issues is also money and lack of transparency. So I found this particularly in my Iron Dad study. There were dads that talked about how they shielded their expenses from their wife, and they actually tried to play on their wife's what they thought was, uh, you know, the wife being naive. Um, So not you know, respecting that the wife knows something or, or you know, has a sense that something's going on. So I had some dads in my Iron Dad study who said that they literally bought a new bike and they would, you know, a new tri bike, which, you know, could be $3,000 or more. And they would put it in the garage, hoping uh, that the wife didn't notice or just completely, uh, you know, shielding, shielding expenses uh, or lying about what they're uh, spending. So, 
to the point where they, they were having gear sent to their office or other addresses so things wouldn't be you know, seen in the home. Um, so it's not hard to imagine that when you start to have that uh, breakdown in communication yeah. and lack of transparency, that things can really snowball very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And it's sad. I mean, I, I, I get it, though. I mean, I think anyone who has done something like that, it does consume your life. And it can. I mean, when I, I've only done one Iron Man. Um, not only, I should say, I have done one Iron Man. And when, when I did it, I was like, I needed my kids at the time. I knew I wanted them both to be in school full time. So um, my youngest was in first grade or kindergarten. I can't remember which one, but it was a full day. And I also knew like the, the coach that I had was like, this is your second job. You know, like you can do, you can do your job, you can do your Ironman. And then it's kind of like family house marriage <laughs> all coming in at number three, right? And not necessarily, you know, for the better, right? Is that, I mean, is that kind of, again, like what you found? Well, it, interestingly, there was a lot of discussion of coaches. Um, and since you, you bring that up, there were a lot of women that felt that coaches did not hear them, oh. that, you know, that women were trying to express, hey, this is my life. This is, this is my my lived experience and what I'm trying to negotiate and that coaches would push a particular value system on those women. Hmm. And many of the women, like they felt trapped and they, they kind of live with that for some time, knowing in their gut that this is not right for them, but not feeling empowered to fire their coach and to move on. Mm -hmm. um, but then I did hear other studies, you know, many of the women did eventually come to that conclusion. It just took time. So it's interesting that at least some of the women in, in the study didn't feel empowered to make the moves that they felt they needed to make at the time they needed to make them. But just this lack of, you know, uh, synchronous with them, their value system and, and their coach's value system. And, and so it is always, you know, a process of trial and error in, in terms of finding a coach that works for you, but also one that values who you are and what your priorities are. A coach should never say, well, it's triathlon first and family second and, you know, career third or whatever, yeah. you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's the, to, to the athlete to decide. Right? Yeah. Well, and also coaches that don't listen. I mean, again, this is not all about me, but I'll just throw this out there just as an example. I mean, first of all, I had a female coach, which um, I think helps. They are, they seem, tend to be a little bit more sympathetic, um, throwing stereotypes out there. But um, but secondly, I was like, I cannot do two workouts Monday through Friday. Like that is not going to work for me. So like, give me 90 minutes in the morning. I will show up for that. Do I can do whatever you want me to do, but I can't like change my clothes twice a day. You know? yeah. <laughs> Two showers a day. We just don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, it's just interesting. And, you know, and, and my coach was like, you know, there are many ways to skin a cat. You don't have mm -hmm. to do it exactly like swim, bike, you know, every, you know, that kind of thing. But it's interesting that um, the coach that that was a, a stumbling point for a lot of people or women, I guess I should say. Mm -hmm. It was. And, you know, it, this is just not a large enough sample size to really, you know, draw any conclusions. But it did happen to be that the women who felt that way were working with male coaches. And they felt then that there was value in transitioning to a female coach because they felt, as you mentioned, that the female coach might be sympathetic. And in the end, you know, that was their experience. So, I mean, I've worked with male coaches and I think there are many, many male coaches that are not only very talented, but also, you know, outstanding at being able to evaluate their athletes' lives and to make adjustments based on that. But just for these few women that were sharing that experience, their coaches just happened to be men. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Right. Stay tuned. We'll be back in one minute to talk more with Diana. Diana. 
let's flip the script a bit. So there are our rewards in accomplishing something so huge that benefit the entire family. Kind of like, you know, playing off that mom guilt. You're like, okay, I'm away from my kids because of X, Y, and Z training, racing, et cetera. But then look at this. Like now my, my kids see me as a strong, powerful woman like Stephanie, who I spoke with for the article, like her little four-year-old sees runners and says, Hey, that's runner strong like mommy. So she feels like that kind of de-escalates her guilt because she's like, I'm going to be able to sit down and play with my daughter and run after her for much longer than I would if I was sedentary. And she spoke to having a child at 41 and just being an older mom and how Iron Man is going to create this lifestyle that will give her longevity. So can you kind of speak to that, Diana, about how this lifestyle is empowering and women see it that way? Absolutely. Yeah, that was a very uh, prominent theme throughout my research. Many women take on Iron Man to begin with to be a beacon for their children and also to engage in what we call generative parenting practices, which is to share certain values with your children, pass them on. And for these women, it's sharing by doing. So not only just watching mom, but in many cases, participating with mom in a variety of ways. So many, many of the moms I spoke with uh, talked about how they tried to integrate their kids in their training where they could, whether it be the moms going out for a run and their kids would bike along. But even more interestingly, give the kids responsibility like, OK, you're going to hold my water bottles. You're going to hold, hold my gel packets so that the kids are not only exercising, but they're also feeling like they are a part of this training session or you know, going to the pool and being able to have your, your kids swim in your swim lane or training at home. This was one of the most common stories was the mom would be on, on a bike train or on the treadmill and the kids, particularly if it was younger kids, might be sitting on a couch nearby watching a movie with the mom. So having the kids observe and participate and having the kids also be at the event. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's about a lifestyle and integrating the idea of health, fitness, and the idea that women can do big things, multiple big things at the same time, that women can hold high-powered, meaningful careers while you know being healthy and fit and great parents. Yeah, I love that. And I, I want to comment for a second here just because how, Diana, do you have children? I do not, no. You do not. Okay. Totally cool that you don't. And I love that you're studying women who do. That's very cool. Part of why I chose to also study Iron Parents is the fact that I'm not a parent. Mm. So, you know, here I was uh, starting, you know, Ironman Wisconsin was my first Ironman. And I'm looking around and I'm just at the start and I'm wondering, well, here I am. And I, I don't have kids. I was early career and wondering, gosh, how, how do people around me do this who have kids? So that's one of the big uh, reasons why I, I chose to study Iron Parents to begin with. That's interesting too, because, um, and then you said it like takes you away and it's helpful for you to like not 100% identify with those who you study. It gives you more objective. It allows you to be more objective. Exactly. Yeah. So it was just, you know, first of all, just the like dying to know how do you do it, knowing just as a someone who's not doesn't have uh, kids that how how challenging it was. And and I just couldn't even begin to imagine how parents did it. So and yes, also wanting to study something that was like me, but not quite like me uh, enough removed where I felt that there could be objectivity. 
Um, and not being a parent, I felt that that played into that. That's interesting. Thank you. So my kids are now 17 and 20, right? And they were young, like I said, when I did the Iron Man. And it was hard for me to believe, like I, I wanted them to see me as strong, but like that didn't ever kind of come out when they were young, right? Like they never said like, oh, they never said, oh, that's a strong runner like mommy or like, I want to go with you or anything. They didn't ever like, <laughs> I wasn't looking for praise. I was just maybe looking for like some sign that maybe it was soaking under their skin, you know? And so um now my 20 year old like is talking about how she doesn't have a good day if she doesn't go to the gym. And, um, and she's a college athlete, which obviously they have to go to the gym a lot, but you know, in the off season and my son like loves to hike and, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's like definitely going to be that way, but I just want to say to parents who are like, I don't see it with my young kids right now. Like it's, it takes a little time to soak in. I think, did you find that at all? I mean, obviously you're studying 12 and under kids. So again, it may not have the, the soak might not have happened yet. So for for some of the parents, they spoke to that. It wasn't a prominent theme in part because, yeah, I didn't quite have that longitudinal component. But yeah, so some of the moms said that they would take out, they would ask their kids to say, be on a, a bike with them when they would go run. And they would talk about how their, their kids weren't, you know, totally enthused about the idea. But then yeah. they brought their kids to an event. And that was a really big turning point where the kids actually saw mom out on the course doing her thing. And then they, the mom would talk about the emotional connection, you know, seeing the kids at a particular mile marker late in the event when it's dark out and how there would be an embrace and there would often be tears and how that would be really transformative for the, not just the mom, and but for the kids as well. And then all of a sudden uh, the kids would show a, a desire to be a part of that. So I think, you know, the kids as they... It's an evolution for them as well. And and seeing their mom, I think, is truly inspiring. And you just never know when that moment might click for them. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in my house, I my kids span four to 15. So I see it. And uh, most recently, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon. That was the first time all four of my kids had been to any of my race, any of my races, because my daughter was born in 2020. So I just wasn't racing much during that time from 2020 to 2023. And yeah, the four-year-old thinks it's cool, likes my medal, you know, said, associates me as a runner. But then like, I see my 15-year-old really thinking, okay, like, that's cool, mom. Like, wow, my mom ran a marathon and my 11 year old is like my biggest hype woman. So she's like, I told my whole class that you ran the marathon, <laughs> you know? And so that's, I see it as they get older. And I do hope, like Dimity said, like, I don't think they're all going to be runners and I don't think they're all going to do Ironmans, but I think that they're going to, my husband and I set an example and it's not just me, it's him too, but we set an example of a healthy lifestyle and hard work. And they've seen that since they were born. So I do hope that it you know, perpetuates into their adulthood as well. Awesome. Well, so you mentioned social media at the top, Diana. Um, and, uh, you know, it is so hard because like, I mean, I know that I try to not be, um, you know, I don't have a perfect house. I don't have a perfect life. I definitely do not make very beautiful meals. <laughs> um, yet, you know, I'm still caught in the trap of like, oh, I don't look good in that picture. I'm going to take it again. Right. I don't want to put that one out. Um, so do you have any ideas about what we can do to kind of make social media not feel quite so pressure filled, both from the person who's looking at it and the person who's also putting it up? So some of the moms actually felt inspired to share their own stories on social media and to share their stories that are beautiful, but not 
you know, perfect. So sure. to to acknowledge, hey, this is this is what my room actually looks like. This is what dinner is tonight, and to take pictures to actually combat that, um, because if we're only going to share our stories or take pictures when something is beautiful and perfect, then that it perpetuates that's what you think you're going to see and what you have to live up to. So some of the moms, they felt that part of why they wanted to do this, that it was important to try to combat that narrative. And so some of the moms actually decide to take some action and say, I'm going to combat it by literally putting myself out there, which I really mm-hmm. applaud. And I recognize that that's a, a very high threshold. So for those that don't feel quite comfortable reaching that threshold. I think uh, I think that there's also some value in limiting our exposure to social media. Yeah. So we might use that as a time for stress relief, and we say, "Well, I'm just I'm I'm relaxing. I'm going to st- scroll and look at Instagram." But realize that maybe that's not a relaxing thing to do. And is there something else that you could do as a substitute? Because you might think that you know this is just enjoyment and and yeah relaxing but in reality recognize that perhaps it's not is there something else that you can do with your time that would literally be relaxing and and would take away this comparative element mm-hmm. pick up a book that's what i try to do <laughs> exactly. i mean i waste so i personally waste so much time on instagram i mean part of my job is instagram i have to say but like i'm telling you there are certain accounts that like i have had had to hide or mute because they're like, I run Ironmans. I have five kids. I, you know, like I have a six pack and like, I'm perfect all the time. And it's just like, mm, something, something has, is not right. You know, you, you're not that perfect, but I don't need that reminder always. So that's what I do. And no shade to those women. Like, you know, I don't really know them in real life, so I don't have to feel guilty about muting them or hiding them from my feed. It's just not what I need in my life to be healthy, you know, emotionally and physically. Agreed. Agreed. I think if women could feel courageous, and I recognize, again, this is a very, very high threshold, um, but to to be vulnerable. And I know it's very hard to be vulnerable in public. In fact, there's a lot of women in the study who didn't even want to talk about the fact that they were an Ironman competitor because they were afraid of being judged by other women, women that they didn't Mm -hmm. even know. It's like they were just afraid of the generalized other so it's like they couldn't name anyone specific. They didn't have anyone specific in mind, but just another mom's going to judge me because I'm not with my kids. So that that adds another layer as to why women don't want to uh, necessarily post. But if someone can find it within themselves to be vulnerable and to show, well, this is what my life is actually like, and it's beautiful to me, and it's getting me to where I want to be as a person, um, the more that we can see those stories, the more that we normalize what it actually is like for the majority of Iron Moms, which is it, many women described as chaotic, but that they find beauty in the chaos. Yeah, hmm. yeah, for sure. So Diana, we, we we covered a lot of topics here and I just love your work and I'm excited to see it continue. But for now, what's the one takeaway that you're hoping to offer with your work with Iron Moms? Uh, wow, it's hard to pick just one. There's so many, uh, I guess so many great insights. So. We talked about earlier that the social narrative of self-care and leisure taking a back seat in what a woman socially should prioritize. But the thing that I heard from Iron Moms time and time again was that in prioritizing themselves and their leisure, specifically Iron Man training, that they felt that they could be better in all realms of life. Yeah. So by ignoring 
your your personal athletic desires, you're not bettering yourself. In fact, you're you're probably just making it such that you're you're now wishing that you were working on this element of yourself, but now you're not. But for the women that did choose to turn to that and and hear that calling and start to train, they spoke about that as empowering and how they felt that they were a better mom, how they felt they were a better spouse, a better friend, and that they thought more highly of themselves because they did this. Mm. So I know it's a courageous choice for a lot of reasons, but I would say if that's something that you want to pursue, you should do it. Um, because for at least the women in, that I spoke to, they felt that it bettered themselves across the board in terms of like that they they were a more present and engaged mom, a more present and engaged spouse, which might on face seem counterintuitive because of these social narratives, but were actuality for these women. I 100% agree with that. I mean, my husband said that that's the happiest he's ever seen me was when I was training for Ironman, which (laughs) I don't know, maybe I should have kept training that. And then also just, you know, just a little PS, like the structure that it puts into your life. You have to be present, right? Like you, you know, I love that, like, because you don't, you're not around your kids all day necessarily. You have those two or three hours with yourself on the bike. Then all of a sudden you come home and you kind of appreciate them more, right? And all the little, mm-hmm. you know, things that maybe drove you crazy prior to that bike ride are like, oh, I can handle that now. Like that's definitely mm-hmm. um, one of the reasons why I love endurance sports. <laughs> it gives me a lot more, like you said, Diana, patience and perspective and presence. Yes, I agree too. And yeah, like we said before, it doesn't have to be an Ironman because that's not something that everybody's going to do, but it could be any big goal. Like there's, I think the benefits far outweigh everything else. Right, Diana? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Right. Uh, do you have something queued up for your next study? Are you going to study the kids or what? <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> I got some kids for you to study if you'd like them. <laughs> you know, I was not expecting the response that I got from the triathlete article. Um, I mean, like I said, just in the the hour and 15 minutes that I walked away from my desk, I had 30 moms. And since then, the emails keep coming. And what the women are sharing with me over email is just so touching. I've had numerous women say, I feel seen. Yeah. And just that. It tells me I need to keep going with the study. I'd like to interview more moms. I'm getting, actually, I received an email this morning from someone who's a single mom. Oh, cool. And she said, I feel like, you know, there's not that many of single moms out there, but here I am and mm-hmm. I want to participate. And I just feel like these moms, they are giving themselves to this and saying, please, you know, I want to participate that I absolutely want to dedicate my time to to reaching out to all of these women and hearing their stories. So uh, I'm just going to continue to uh, to interview and turn this into a larger project. Can't wait to read the book, Diana. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> thank Agreed. you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Diana. Yeah, thanks, Diana. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I loved uh, being a guest today. If you've got a marathon on your plate coming up, maybe consider using the 26.2 Go the Distance program. Elizabeth used it to run the 2023 Chicago Marathon. She was actually entered into the 2022, but she broke her foot and had to defer a year. Here's what she said. I was nervous about the marathon distance after being injured for such a long period of time. I chose the Go the Distance plan since finishing strong and injury-free was my goal. This program did the trick. 
It held me accountable while also being flexible and allowing me some grace here and there when I would get caught up with work, mom duties, we just talked about, illness, and other various complications of life that sometimes set us all back. The community support is amazing and helped me keep going when my motivation for those 20 mile long runs was waning. I can't recommend this program enough or the Bammer community enough. Thanks for such a nice review, Elizabeth. And again, 26.2 Go the Distance is a great program for those first time marathoners or coming back from an injury. We'll link it in the show notes. Our podcast today was produced by Barry Medore of Fire on the Bluff in St. Paul, Minnesota. 